So last week, I apologize, last week I, I got all confused on my dates and I told you we were gonna talk about how God was slow to anger. That's not today, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I got all messed up on my schedule. That's actually on Father's Day, which is perfect because dads don't deal with anger at all. So um, we're going to do that on Father's Day, dads. Um, but we've been in the middle of this series called Reveal. And what we're doing is we're looking at the two verses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, those two verses that actually end up being the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. And the reason why we're doing it is because this is God's initial self-disclosure statement about who he is, his character, um, his nature, how he interacts with his created uh, human beings. And, and we, with the first week, we actually talked about the name of God, Yahweh, um, and that this God is personal and relational and wants to have a relationship with you and me. Um, last week, we actually... <laughs> We got real deep. We got kind of heavy. We talked about how this is, uh, we asked the question, why does God have a name? Why does God need a name? And what scripture shows us that there's a whole bunch of other created gods and that God is distinguishing himself from them. And that you and I live in this reality of other spiritual forces at work in the world. And um, I had a lot of conversations about last week's teaching. And um, if you weren't here, um, I think you can grab it online and, and, and check it out. But listen to this. Let me, let me read to you these two verses. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So let me just say this. Imagine, imagine you are living in 1500 BC. You're a Hebrew. You're formerly a slave in Egypt. And, uh, you're, you're now traipsing through the desert and you're, you're near Mount Sinai, which is in Saudi Arabia. And you inhabit a very spiritually charged world full of gods and spirits. And these divine beings are anything but nice, as you've noticed in your days living in Egypt. They're finicky, they're capricious, they're ready to fly off the handle at any moment's notice. And so you make sacrifices to these gods. And to keep the gods off your back or to get the, something from the gods, you would sacrifice different things um, and, and it would build. Uh, you know, it might start with a goat and may get to something big like a bull. Remember we talked about last week that sacrifices are currency over time. We talked about how that translates for you and I, okay? And um, at some point, you know, it depends on who you worshiped, the God might require a child sacrifice. Molech would require a child sacrifice. 
Anybody remember the history of world, you know, history and world civilization and class you had, and you, you probably had it freshman year, and you remember the story of Troy, and King Agamemnon was, was you know, cruising uh, into battle over, you know, the Mediterranean Sea to fight the Trojan War, and his fleet was dead in the water. I don't know if you remember this story. And so the gods required a sacrifice to get the winds to blow. They worshiped Artemis. And if you know anything about the book of Ephesus, that was the main worship to God in Ephesus was Artemis. And so King Agamemnon knows that he has to sacrifice a child and he sacrifices his daughter. And I can't pronounce her name. And what happens? The wind begins to blow. Now, is that myth or is that history? You know, we don't know. It's, <laughs> does it really happen? What's happening there? Why is everybody laughing at me? Listen, there, are, there were spiritual forces at work, but the ancient world is in fear of the gods, and so then Yahweh shows up. The one true creator God shows up. And he comes to their rescue. And he saves them. And he leads them through, uh, through the Red Sea, across the desert. He gives them food and water to survive the journey. And they've done nothing to deserve it. Who is this God, right? And the reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're into this is because I think for many of us, we have these versions of God in our heads and in our hearts that are not totally accurate. The first phrase that we see in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, after Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, we see compassionate and gracious. The Hebrew for this is rachum vachum. It's something that you don't want to try to say because I probably butchered it. And it's two words that pair together in Hebrew and they stay together in Hebrew all the time. Like whenever you see compassionate, you usually see gracious at the same time. They go together almost all the way throughout scripture. And so the Hebrew word for compassionate is actually the word for womb. It actually means something that is much deeper than, oh, I feel bad for you. It actually is the same word used for how a mother cares for her child. That's the word compassion, that God has this very female quality, this very motherly, heavy, like loving, compassionate, wombish, care for a child feeling towards his people. And it, it may, it's the same word. If you were to look at Psalms 103, uh, Psalm 103, 13, it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It's actually that word. It's as a father has womb-like in instincts for his child. It's kind of a weird phrase. It's not very Father's Day-ish, right? You know, it's just it's this idea that God has this huge amount of motherly compassion for it. Isaiah 49, 15 says this. I love this verse. 
Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, the answer is no. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. So, so what, what God's saying is that like the chances of me forgetting you are, are zero compared to a mother. I mean, a, a mother would, could, would probably forget you before I would, is what God's saying here. And the chances of that happening are, <laughs> just ask a mom. I was in... Um, visiting Chris and Brittany this week after the birth of little Lucas and um, having a conversation with, with, uh, with Chris. And he's like, man, I had no idea how I was going to feel when, when this baby was born. I had no idea. He's like, I would run through a wall. I would, and he just starts listing off all these ways. He's just like, I can't even believe how much I love this little guy. And it's just like that, right? And then this word, so you got compassionate, and then you have this word gracious. Compassionate's a feeling word, right? Gracious is an action. So you can be compassionate and do nothing. But God is always compassionate and gracious. God is always feeling and moving. Okay, and so th this is how God shows grace. Here's an example of this grace. Genesis 33 says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered. They are the children God has graciously given your servant. This idea that God did this action and gave, right? This is the idea behind gracious. It, it's what happens after compassion, okay? So we talk a lot about grace in church. doesn't matter what church, Christian church you go into, grace is usually talked about. The, the thing, though, is that compassion is the seedbed for grace, that God's grace comes from his character, who he is. God is compassionate and gracious. And so first in the list of the ways God self-discloses who he is, is compassionate and gracious. See, there's, there's an order to this. It starts with Yahweh, Yahweh, his, his name, um, I am who I will be, um, and, and then said twice because it's important, and then he starts off with compassionate and gracious. This is at the fundamental core, this is the piece of who Yahweh is. The problem is, is that many of us have this stereotype of God in the Old Testament as being mean and flying off the handle, you know? And talking about his wrath and all this different stuff. And we, we miss, okay? We miss this. And there's, a, there's a definitely a sequence. So, so part of the sequence the last couple of weeks is we talk about the boring Hebrew stuff. We talk about some, some Old Testament places this pops up. The first one is uh, in 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, what's happening? If you ever read Kings, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, there's a whole uh, kind of cadence to it. 
And it's different sets of kings that come into power. It says they reign a certain amount of years. And then it either says they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord or they, they did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. Most of the time, most of the time they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Generation after generation after generation. The son comes to power, does what's evil. Then he gets killed by somebody and they come to power and they do what's evil. And what happens is, is they, what, what they do that's evil is they worship other gods. Okay, going back to last week. Do you remember this conversation? They worship other Elohim. Okay, and, and what they do is they set up different ways to worship these Elohim, and, and there's, there's Ashtoreth poles, and there's, there's, there's a bunch of different things they do. There's just some horrific things they get to be a part of, but um, there's this powerful moment where there's an, an, another nation involved, and, and, and God steps in and saves Israel from this other nation. And it says in 2 Kings 13, verse 23, listen to this, but the Lord was gracious to them and had what? Compassion. And showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. So this idea that God continues to be compassionate, continues to be gracious, even when his people worship other gods. Even when his people are unfaithful. And so we talked last week about the things that in our lives that are kind of idolatrous, you know, the things in our lives that we tend to kind of pull our distraction away from the worship of Yahweh and, and, and we're that way too. And lest you think that, well, we don't, you know, live in tents and sacrifice goats, we're totally different. We're not. Our heart is prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to worship other things and other gods. And so, and so then we have the story of Jonah. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, just hang tight because in the, in, the, in the month of July, we're going to really dig into the, the book of Jonah but, um, in a few weeks. So I can't get really, really into this. But Jonah is being called by God at one point to go to Nineveh to tell the people of Nineveh about him. And what does Jonah do? I mean, you don't have to be a, a big time, you know, churchgoer to know this story. Jonah what? He, he takes off, man. He goes the other direction. Like Nineveh's over here. He gets on a boat and sails to Tarshish, which is like at the edge of the explored map. Okay. He just goes anywhere he can. Is he afraid of the Ninevites? Not, yes, ish. I mean, you would be, if we're going to get into the story of the Ninevite, I mean, the Assyrians and, and how, how brutal they are. He's actually, he's actually afraid that God is actually going to show compassion and grace on the Assyrians. And so he doesn't want to go. He doesn't think they deserve it. He doesn't want God to show compassion and grace on the Assyrians because they're a wicked, brutal people. And he doesn't think they deserve it. Let me ask you this. Who in our world do you hope God doesn't show compassion and grace on? I mean, think of that group of people. And that's Jonah. Maybe you think that ISIS, 
maybe you think that certain political parties, maybe you think that you just, you, just, you just have something in your mind and in your heart and you know that God could be compassionate and gracious on them, but you don't want that to be the case. You would rather pick and choose who God was compassionate and gracious to. And I'm kind of the same way. You know, there's, there's, I've had a pretty, I mean, I guess compared to a lot of lives, I guess my life's been pretty, pretty easy. There's been a couple times in my life that I've been really hurt by somebody else. Uh, and we could share stories, I'm sure. We could campfire this and talk about times when someone's hurt us. And you know what's crazy? A lot of time it happens in, in the church family a little bit. The two times I've been hurt by somebody else pretty significantly have been in church circles. The first time and the second time were different. The first time, the, the, the guy who kind of just spoke pretty ill of me, um, his life ended up going pretty downhill in the years following that incident. And so I felt like a little bit, I'll just be honest with you, I felt a little vindication. I felt like, yeah, that's, that's about right. <laughs> I mean, am I alone on this one? Or anybody else feel this before? Second time it happened, though, um, some things were said about me and some things were just misunderstood and there was a whole group of people that were given information that was just not true about me. I mean, nothing crazy. I'm not like I'm a bank robber or pedophile or anything, but just, you know, like, like, like my, my, my motives were questioned. My character was questioned and, 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 and those things were talked about uh, me behind my back with a whole other group of people that I knew and I loved. And for months and years, I, I, I just, it wasn't appropriate for me to say anything or to respond to that. And, you know, even to this day, there's some misunderstandings there. And so there's some ill will in my heart towards this guy. And um, sometimes I just find myself going, I don't, I don't have compassion for him or his family, or what was done in that way. And, I, and, it, and, it, and it's something that sometimes keeps me up at night. I'll just be honest with you. And I say that to you because I know that maybe you have that going on in your life or have had that happen to you as well. And what all this goes to show us is, show us is that God is not only compassionate, but he cannot be compassionate without being gracious too. And I'm really good at maybe just being compassionate. Like, like, like I can pick when I'm compassionate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I will choose to be compassionate to this. It's kind of like this culture we live in right now, which is about raising awareness, right? This raising awareness culture. And, um, and I make fun of raising awareness. There's a point to it because you want people to be aware, right, that there is bad things happening in the world, right? But usually it ends at that. Usually it kind of churns up some compassion in us, right? And some, oh, that's, that's, have you seen this documentary? Oh, yeah, that really moved me. Well, how much did it move you? 
Because, you know, we saw, this, we saw this documentary called The True Cost, and it talks about clothing and stuff like that. I still buy my clothes at the store like everybody else does. Like, how much does it... I'm not out in the backyard, like, making my... Like, growing my own cotton and looming together my own clothes. That would be weird. So I have compassion, right? And I can choose to have compassion on certain things. But I don't really extend as much grace. That doesn't go with it. God is always compassionate and always gracious. If, if Yahweh means I am who I will be, meaning I will be who I am all the time, and then he says he's compassionate and gracious, means God says I will be. I am who I will be, compassionate and gracious, 24-7. Unchanging, unmoving, unrelenting compassion and grace towards you and me. And we see this picked up in the Gospels. This is Jesus, and he is, there's this passage here in Luke 17, and Jesus is rolling down the road, flipping the wrong page here. He's rolling down the road, and he comes upon a group of uh, gentlemen who have leprosy. Now, this is a part of the country that there is a ton of racial tension. There's a ton of racial tension going on. This is right on the edge of Samaria and Galilee. And if you don't know the difference of the two, there is a significant racial difference here. Racial, religious difference. There um, There is deep hostility here. It says this, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. Now, um, there's huge hostility, racial tension. Then you get to throw leprosy in, right? Just like add that ingredient. And leprosy is such a brutal disease. We've gone through this a little bit before. The idea is these 10 men have done something in their life that is sinful or somebody in their family has done something in their life that is sinful, therefore they are being punished because of leprosy, okay? And because they have leprosy, it means that they're actually on the outside of God's favor and because they have leprosy, they are actually holding the Israel the people of Israel back from experiencing all that God wants for them. That's the, the, the perception at the time, okay? And it says they stood at a distance because that's custom and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for compassion. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, of the 10, that's 10%, when he saw he was healed, came back. So 10% of them turned around. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? 
Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. See, I want to beat up on that caricature of the Old Testament God as mean and capricious and wrathful. And then Jesus is his son that we joked around a couple weeks ago that his son that went off to college and learned a whole bunch of new ways to do in the world and said, hey, God, you're, you're too mean and wrathful. How about I just, how about I die for these people? And God says, okay, that'll work. That's not accurate. And many of you grew up in a church with that caricature. And you are still unraveling that in your mind and in your heart. You are still wrestling with that. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, and Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Look at Luke 18. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he's saying two things here. The first one, he's saying son of David, which means he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, which is a big piece. This is very Jewish language here. Then he says, have mercy on me. That same word mercy is the same word that we just talked about, pity, which is the same Old Testament translation of compassion. Jesus, son of David, have compassion on me. Those who led uh, those who led the way rebuked him. <laughs> you got to love Christians. Um, those who led the way rebuked him. Sometimes we just are so dumb. And he told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's just shouting this. And this is my favorite part of the story. Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. And he ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? See, this is the gracious part, right? God is always compassionate and gracious. So Jesus, the guy's asking for mercy, asking for compassion. Jesus stops. He says, what do you want me to do? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. See, mercy and compassion are the same thing. What, what I love about this story, and, it, and I think some of this is like just a little snapshot of how some of us come to God in prayer. There are three different ways we approach God. Listen to how this blind guy approaches God. He approaches God based on who God is. Jesus, David, have mercy on me. Problem is, is that many of us approach God with two different, two different other ways. Some of us approach God with, with what we you know, have done. God, I've done this and I've done that and I've read this Bible study and I've gone to this church faithfully and I've served and I've, I've even set up and tear, torn down at this church. I've even worked with kids, right? Like, like, God, this is what I've done. Okay? And we come to God with that posture. 
Sometimes we come to God based on what's been done to us. And we say things like, okay, God, this just, I mean, I lost my job and, th- and, th- and this was unfair and the people said mean things about me and this. And we come to God with that, what's been done to us. Well, we learn from this blind, blind guy by the road. It's coming to God based on who God is. It's just a really powerful thing. Both of these stories is Jesus showing compassion, having compassion and showing grace. That Jesus feels and moves. That Jesus deep has deep feeling and emotion back to that idea of this motherly love for these people and then moves to action. We can't separate those. And like I said before, I'm really good at separating those. I can choose whether to have compassion. And, and, and sometimes the reason why I think that, because I don't totally believe that God is compassionate and gracious to me. See, we talked about this before, this idea of God. When If you have an idea of who God is in your life, it'll affect how you live your life. And so from God's perspective, there's never a begrudging moment okay, with you. His feeling and his action is always the same. He's never just like, oh, it's you again. Why do you keep bothering me? God never has that begrudging moment. Listen to this. Luke chapter, um, you know, I really apologize. My notes got all jacked up. The printer started printing front and back instead of just one at a time. What a mess. Apologize. Um, let me tell one more story. This is Jesus' story. Before these two accounts of Jesus, Jesus actually tells a story. And you know it. It's the story of the prodigal son. But I actually think it's more, it should be titled the scandalous dad story. Let me explain. So there's this kid, there's his two sons. One of them says, Dad, I'm out. I actually wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. And that's the way they would, you know, if you wanted your inheritance early, it was just kind of like this slap in the face. Honor, shame, culture, family, the whole thing. Dad, I wish you were dead. Takes off, squanders all of his money and his wealth. Um, This is Jesus telling the story. talks about feeding pigs. Uh, There's prostitutes involved. There's just, it's a rough time. Loses all his money. And then we pick up the verse, the story in verse 20. He realizes that he is just going to go back and be one of his dad's hired servants. And he says this. So he got up, Jesus says, and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, in, in this time, you don't run. If you're a dad, you don't run, which I've taken that literally in my life too. <laughs> Just, you know, I'm too dignified to run. Dads didn't run. Dads were the patriarch. People did the work for dad. But this dad sees him coming a long way off and runs, totally undignified towards his son, wraps his arms around him, Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. Filled with compassion, he runs. For Jesus, this is Jesus' view of God. This is Jesus' view of God. The creator of the universe is not capricious. He's not a tyrant in the sky who is mostly annoyed at you and waiting for you just to screw up. He's compassionate and gracious. Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount is, is really telling because Luke writes it very much like an Old Testament poem. He takes the teachings of Jesus and there's, it's kind of ordered in a certain way that makes the most important part of what Jesus teach, teaches come to this one verse, actually in verse 36, but we're gonna start in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high. Love that because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So, so God is kind to the ungrateful, the wicked, to the Assyrians, to the Ryan Ashleys, to the you. And he calls us to be the children of the Most High. And here's how we know if we're children of the Most High. Here's the hinge verse in all of the Sermon on the Mount according to Luke. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Love that. Like this is somehow in our DNA as followers of Jesus, we are called to be like God, compassionate and gracious. We're called to imitate God. This is a very rabbinic idea that we're called to, to follow our rabbi in such a way as to become like him and do what he does in the world. This is all about who Jesus is. God is compassionate, therefore we are called to be compassionate. God is gracious and we're called to be gracious. God is slow to anger and we're called to be slow to anger. God is spilling over with love and faithfulness and you and I are called to spill over with love and faithfulness. There's a writer named Henry Nouwen and he wrote a whole book on the, the prodigal son through the lens of the, of the painting of Rembrandt. And if you ever get a chance to read this book, it's super powerful. But he wrote this. This is a long quote and I think it's really important for us to hear it. He says, perhaps the most radical statement that Jesus ever made is be compassionate as your father is compassionate. We just read this. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive my sins, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing me. If the only meaning in the story were that people sin, but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sins as, fine, as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be 
if I can find my other page. No real challenge in such an interpretation. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the gospel. What I am called to make true is that whether I am the younger or the older son, I am the son of my compassionate father. I am an heir. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered me. Being in my father's house requires that I make the father's life my own and become transformed into his image. That's the implication for us. If God is compassionate and gracious and we are followers of this God and we are heirs of this God, then that's how we need to be. I think of a lot of people in our church who are going through faith walking. And faith walking is a journey and it, it kind of helps us go to those places in our lives and we figure out in our lives how we're living out of brokenness, okay, and how we react and do life out of these broken habits in our lives. And what I find with most everybody that goes through it is once you go through it and once you figure out how you're broken and, and, and just just uh, how you've lived that way for so many years, you begin to have compassion on people. You begin to see how people live and you're just like, oh, they're, bu they're busted just like me. They just don't know how deeply they are yet. That's what this is. And so what this is, is this, this isn't sentimental ro romanticism. This is a vision, getting a vision of God, of who God is and what God is like that changes who you are and what God's called you to be. In Colossians, it says, is therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is, he's talking about putting on these clothes. Like this is like you, something you get up every day and hopefully you put on clothes, you know, like roommates and whatever, you know. Like hopefully, like this is, Paul says, put this on. Like you have to consciously do it. Like, make this happen in your life. And, I mean, this is, goes, just gets down to the depth of who we are. Because remember when we started this whole series, as we wrap this up, we talked about this quote from A.W. Tozer. And he wrote this. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that is very, very, very true. And so my final thing for you is this. Do you honestly believe that God is your father? I mean, do you honestly believe that? Like, do the deepest part of your being, do you believe that? Do you believe that he feels compassion for you? That he's gracious to you and wants to help you? Is this how you relate to God? You come with him, to him with trust and freedom, like a child coming to their mom and their dad. Because there's no time like the present. Like if that's something that you want, if that's the kind of relationship you want with God, and you're having to peel back all these other ideas that you've had of who God is. See, there's an illusion 
to Exodus 34 in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace, right? To help us in our time of need. Do you hear the echo of Mount Sinai in that? So where do you need mercy today? Like, where, where do you need grace today? I want to encourage you, you can come to God with that. Like, it's already there. The hands, the arms are already open wide, and God's just like, let's do this. <laughs> He's compassionate and gracious. When? All the time. All the time. So no matter where you've been, what you've done recently, how messed up you've made everything, what kind of stink is on you, the Father is already